Masks, gymnastics, Trump loses in Texas. What is going on? Let's cover it all. Welcome to the Texas Take, the number one political podcast in Texas. I'm Scott Braddock, editor at QuorumReport.com, and Jeremy Wallace, who is about to take a long uh, and well-deserved vacation. I get to talk to him one more time before that, uh, is here to help us walk through the news of the week. Hello, sir. Hello. Ready to go. Let's do this. I uh, am looking at the news, and it's one of those shows where I could start with any of the topics that we're going to talk about, any of the big news stories. Uh, Any of them are big enough for us to tackle right up front. But I do think that, and all of it's coming up, we've got the the voting rights fight in Washington. We've got um, a special election in Texas, which I haven't even mentioned yet, uh, in which uh, Trump uh, lost, his candidate lost, although he said he won. He said he, he didn't want to claim it was a loss. It's really a win. We'll explain that coming up. Uh, but first, it's the debate over masks, COVID-19. I know you're keeping track of the latest numbers, and we updated folks last week. Where do we seem to be right now with uh, you know, both hospitalizations, infections, uh, you know, vaccination rates, and all that as far as you can tell? Yeah, it's it's crazy. We, we're almost at six thousand hospitalizations, you know, statewide, which is the highest amount of hospitalizations since February. So you can see we're we're hitting some pretty high milestones on that front. Uh, the vaccination rates still just aren't there. Uh, the state, you know, uh, Department of State Health Services, their website shows that we're just about over fifty-two, fifty-three percent of people vaccinated fully. Uh, that's 12 years up and older because obviously people under 12, you know, we don't have vaccinations for them yet. Uh, that number is pretty low, uh, but it gets bad in some places. You know, it's like we're talking like it's under 40 percent vaccination and, you know, areas like Colleen, you know, Texas, uh, Galveston, you know, Beaumont. They have really low vaccination rates. And this won't come as a surprise. Those are also the places where the hospitalizations are the worst right now. Uh, they're completely running out of ICU beds uh, in the clean area. Uh, you know, there's serious strains in Galveston and in uh, Beaumont. And so you see that those are the areas that they're hard hit. You know, Department of State Health Services is trying to do more outreach programs in those areas to try to get people vaccinated. Uh, They do have a $10 million grant from the federal government that they're going to distribute to. It's interesting. They're going to uh, nonprofit groups, you know, uh, faith-based groups, trying to get them to get people to go get vaccinated because they're assuming at this point that a lot of those people in those rural areas particularly are are like have tuned out government noise on this right they don't want to hear the government tell you to get a vaccination so maybe if your youth pastor group <laughs> tells you <laughs> maybe you should do it you know maybe people will do it or you know just try to take some of those barriers down and try to meet people where they are mentally on it so so the state's certainly trying to do some different things as these numbers are getting way out of hand we we doubled the number of hospitalizations from COVID 19 in just two weeks if we keep this up we're headed back to where we were last summer when we had to shut everything down uh, or, you know, and, and again, if the governor doesn't want to shut anything down, then I don't know what happens with the hospital system. Well, naturally, Greg Abbott, our governor, is doing things to try to contain the disease. He's issuing executive orders now to require masks and vaccine passports. Oh, wait, no, he's doing the exact opposite. I mean, the exact opposite. The the executive order that he issued on COVID-19 specifically, and then one that was sort of tangential and seems even more political than the than the first one. Uh, let me do the first one. Uh, let me do the uh, 
the direct one about COVID-19 first. Let me say it that way. It would bar any entity that receives tax dollars from um, being able to require masks and being able to require a vaccine uh, proof. Uh, not really a passport. That's kind of a made up term, but, but having to show your card that you were vaccinated or whatever. Um, the governor says that this should be about personal responsibility. And you heard him say that here on the show last week, the other executive order that he put in place has to do with, and this is why I'm saying it's tangential. It's sort of strange. And it tells me it's more political than it is about policy has to do with the border. It has to do with undocumented immigrants. The other executive order says that DPS can stop a car or a bus if they suspect that it has illegal immigrants in it and they might be uh, spreading COVID-19. That, it seems problematic on a whole lot of levels. One, how would you know that the people in a car are not documented? Would you like to guess if you talk to police about this uh, just privately, what would they say about looking at vehicles and trying to figure out whether the people in them, particularly in places like South Texas, are undocumented? Well, the first thing would be what color they are, right? Which would back up the argument of the ACLU, which has said this will uh, lead to more racial profiling. There's also some questions about whether the governor really has the authority to grant the kind of authority he's granting to the Department of Public Safety which is to, for one thing, say that the DPS can impound these cars if they want to. That was not something yeah. they had ever been able to do before. So here you have the governor playing primary politics, uh, especially on the one about immigration, but also uh, the first one that I mentioned, which is about banning the masks. How angry were conservatives all over this state? You mentioned the numbers last summer and how bad things got last summer. One of the things that was happening, of course, was the debate over masks and whether people were going to wear them or not. This is before we had the vaccine in, you know, just an incredible supply of the vaccine like we do now. And for the people who are not getting vaccinated, you have a lot of folks saying shame on you because you're putting everybody else at risk. You are a Petri dish for the new variants that are causing so many problems, including the Delta variant, which is uh, uh, transmissible uh, in ways that uh, the last round of this just wasn't at all. There's almost no comparison, right? I think I read where you'd have to be in a room with somebody for 15 minutes with the first version of COVID-19 that we were dealing with last year around this time. And with the Delta variant, it's one second that you'd be in a room with somebody who had it and be able to get it, right? I mean, that, that people are spreading it, even if they are vaccinated. This leads to a lot of confusion. All this leads to a lot of confusion and trying to deal with a public health crisis. I should also say this, the governor is um, curtailing the kind of public health measures that you would put in place to try to contain the disease, right? Yep. Which is not what Texas law says that he's empowered to do. It says the opposite. It says when there's a public health disaster, what he's empowered to do is put things in place to try to stop the spread of the disease that's in question, right? And, that, and so we're going to see if this is challenged uh, in court, but why are they talking about it this way? Um, you saw in Capitol in uh, in Washington on Capitol Hill, where Republicans, including a lot of them from Texas, were protesting masks and saying that the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, is wrong to be uh, putting a mask mandate back in place in Washington, where you would expect most people, certainly those who interface with the federal government every day, you'd expect them to be, you know, to be vaccinated, right? So Representative Chip Roy from here in Central Texas, he took to the House floor to protest this mandate that Speaker Pelosi 
has now reinstated. What we're seeing at the border is an absolute travesty. And yet my colleagues on the other side of the aisle are going to do nothing, literally nothing about that today, even as we see people spilling across the border who are clearly testing positive for COVID. We have a hotel in La Jolla, Texas, that is literally filled right now with individuals who are heavily testing positive for COVID. These are the facts on the ground. Roy said he doesn't understand why they have to have masks in Washington, where, as I mentioned, most folks are vaccinated. However, as we pointed out on the show last week, a lot of the Republican representatives won't even say whether they've been vaccinated. Keep that in mind. He says that it's ridiculous that they're talking masks in D.C., but there's no action on the border. We have a crisis at our border, and we're playing footsie with mask mandates in the people's house. I mean, it's absolutely absurd what this body is doing, the people's house. It's an embarrassment. It's a mockery. And the American people are fed up. They want to go back to life. They want to go back to business. They want to go back to school without their children being forced to wear masks, to be put in the corner, to have mental health issues. And we're running around here, and the speaker comes down here at 10 o'clock in the morning saying, we got to wear masks in the people's house while we've got thousands of people pouring across our border, and Democrats don't do a darn thing about it, heavily infected with COVID. We have the New York Times, okay, today. What a mess. CDC about to reverse on indoor masking for the vaccinated, quote unquote. This is some serious nanny state stuff that will only breed resentment. No kidding. He says there's legitimate confusion over whether the vaccine actually works. If you, and this is why he's saying it. And I think this is where he, the rest of that is, is a lot of nonsense. I'm just going to make that judgment right now. Talking about the people coming over the border who may have COVID-19 as being the problem is as misleading as it could be. It's places like Arkansas that have some of the worst problems. And guess what? They're not on the Texas-Mexico border. It's called the Texas-Mexico border because Texas is what, you know, butts up to Mexico. <laughs> Arkansas doesn't. What? Yes. <laughs> I, I feel Breaking a little, news here I feel a little silly. <laughs> I feel a little silly having to explain that. My mother had serious health issues earlier this year. And one of the reasons she could not get a bed for a procedure she needed was because people in Arkansas refused to wear masks and refused to get the vaccine. So I'm a little angry about that. But I guess I have to explain it here uh, publicly and everywhere. By the way, she's doing much better now. At home, resting, doing well. He says, Roy says, there is confusion because they're telling people to get the vaccine, but even if people have the vaccine, they're telling them that they still have to wear a mask. He says that is bogus. Which is it? Vaccines or masks? Do the vaccines work or they don't work? Do the masks work so they don't work? I'd like to know which it is. I'd like Dr. Fauci to come down and answer a single question about nat natural immunity. Have you been infected with a virus? Do you have immunity? Or are they just going to go around poking people saying you must take a vaccine? Oh, but sorry, the vaccine doesn't work. You must wear a mask. This institution is a sham and we should adjourn and shut this place down. So, Jeremy, I think there's some legitimate um, criticism of the Centers for Disease Control, the way that they have talked about this publicly, because a lot of it does confuse people. But there shouldn't be confusion about what I'm what I'm about to say, which I think the numbers back this up is the and I don't just think it it's true. Um, the people who are getting really ill with COVID-19 right now are people who are not vaccinated. Right. I mean, that that Correct. that is borne out by the numbers yeah. um, that now the they're. Vast 
the mm-hmm. vast majority of people in Texas hospitals with COVID-19 right now are, in fact, people who have not been vaccinated, according to, you know, DISHES, the Department of State Health Services. Yeah. So that's backed mm-hmm. up. And the um, the deal with the Delta variant, correct me if I'm wrong, is not that it's necessarily more deadly or makes you sicker. It's just that it spreads faster. Right. So if you yeah. don't so if you don't have the vaccine and you get it. The same thing would happen to you that was happening to people last summer where they were having to put people on uh, you know, respirators uh, and try to keep them alive that way. And as we mentioned on the show last week, you have a lot of people who are desperate to get the vaccine once it's already too late for them and they're intubating the person. Right. Well, and I want to jump off of what you just said there, because like there, there is some confusion out there because of how fast this has happened. Right. You know, it's like to, to think how quickly we got these vaccines out there and like the vaccines don't give you immunity in terms of you can never get the virus. You know, it's like and that I don't think was ever articulated very clearly to people. You know, it's like, you know, I think a lot of people got the shot thinking. I'm done now. I can go to any, you know, gathering whatsoever. You're still getting the virus, potentially. It's still a very contagious, one of the most contagious things we've ever seen. It's like it's mutated so quickly and perfected its ability to jump from human to human. And so it's still transporting. And so you may be vaccinated. It means that you're not going to get the illness as badly as you would have without it. But you're still going to be able to transmit that to other people who have been been vaccinated so you can see that the, there's a double prong here you know chip roy is right in some regard right there's a little piece of truth in there it's like you know the vaccine doesn't mean you don't ever get covid19 it just means you may avoid being in the hospital for it you know and that's what people are kind of learning now the ones who are going into the hospital asking for the vaccine it's like it's too late for that we can't get you a vaccine that'll be effective when you're already being damaged by the ravages of this virus. So I know there's a lot to unpack there. And it's hard, I think, for the federal officials to explain that to people in a way that says you should get this vaccine. But by the way, it won't make you immune from it. Yeah. It's like, what? You're right. Well, I mean, it's the same as when people get uh, in this respect, the same as when a lot of folks get the flu shot. They may still get they may still get the illness, but it just won't be as bad as uh, as it would be otherwise. And when former President Trump and others would compare COVID-19 to the flu, what they were trying to do was downplay the severity of this. Well, the truth is the flu is terrible. It's yeah. awful. If, if you didn't have a vaccine for the flu, how many people would it kill? Right? Because yeah. it used to kill millions of people, right? Lots yeah. of people. And now it doesn't because guess what? We did things to fight it. And there are other diseases that are similar. We have contained diseases before through vaccinations, quarantine, etc. This stuff isn't necessarily new, but it's not uh, simple. We're going to see what happens with the governor's executive order on all this stuff, the uh, the two executive orders that I mentioned. I think you're probably going to see some legal challenges on those uh, in the days and months to come. And of course, a lot of that's going to change uh, based on a lot of what we see on the ground is going to change based on what those numbers continue to look like as we go forward. So we'll keep track of it for you. Other big thing uh, happening in Washington, we just heard from Representative Roy, you may have seen that he was also in this hearing with the Texas Democratic uh, members from the Texas House uh, who uh, were there to testify about the voting rights fight that is ongoing. Um, The Texas Democrats who broke quorum, and you would think we'd run out of things to say about this because they left the state. No, they left the state and um, they are denying the Republican leadership the ability to move forward with legislating here in Austin. 
So nothing's happening at the Texas Capitol. I was talking with some journalists, staffers, and even some of the politicians themselves about what's going on here in Austin. Nothing. There's nothing going on. People are doing long lunches and hanging out in the afternoon. People who can't go back to their home districts are just, you know, they're probably uh, maybe playing video games. Who knows what? They're not doing any legislating right now because the Democrats are in Washington. And they were in this hearing uh, before the U.S. House uh, to make their case for why federal legislation is needed to try to help people secure the right to vote. Representative Symphonia Thompson, Democrat of Houston, veteran legislator, she sort of led things off uh, with this commentary about how hard it has been uh, over many decades. And remember, she was first sworn into the Texas House back in the 70s. She's been around for a while. Um, she was uh, she was talking about the fact that she's been there for 25 terms, right? So, uh, about 50 years. <laughs> um, yeah. She's not a newbie to this. Listen to her talking about what it was like growing up in Houston uh, during the civil rights era and the whole fight to be able to have uh, folks uh, from her community be able to exercise the franchise. I was born in Texas. And I can tell you, just from my testimony as a child, my grandmother used to work and earn $2 a week working for the privilege. And out of those $2 a week, she used to save pennies and nickels to be able to buy a poll tax. The poll tax, as you know, was created uh, to give people uh, an opportunity to invest in public education support. But if you were white, the grandfather clause took care of you. You didn't have to pay the poll taxes. But my grandmother was African-American, and she had to pay those poll taxes. And to pay $1.25, it was difficult to save money. My grandfather couldn't afford to buy poll taxes because they both couldn't afford to have poll taxes. It was cost, too costly. She had to ride a bus to get to the poll tax a place for colored people to go and vote. And it wasn't a short distance, and transportation was certainly not accessible as it is today. So much progress has been made on this, but as we have talked about here and others have covered, you have this ongoing fight over the rules surrounding how you're able to vote. Republicans will say they're just trying to secure the ballot box, that there is fraud and no fraud is acceptable in their estimation. I want to spend a little bit of time on what happened in this hearing because there are a few interesting things that I think illuminate a few, a few uh, you know, facts about this debate. You may have seen Congresswoman Nancy Mace from South Carolina, focus a lot of her questioning of Ms. T on voter ID. And I want to say this on the front end of this. We have voter ID in Texas. We're good on that. We, we've had it for, for 10 years. Fo yeah, photo this is ID. is not the issue in Texas. This is not we'll, what we're talking Can we move on already? <laughs> apparently not. Listen to the questioning here. It goes on for a little while, but I want you to get the rhythm of what was happening there. Coming from South Carolina, we've got, we've got voter ID. Um, and uh, I'm assuming Texas is the same way. Do y'all do y'all need IDs to buy alcohol when you're purchasing at the store? Yes, if, uh, to be sure that you are capable of doing that. Right. Do you need an ID in Texas to buy cigarettes? You can't buy them unless you're tw at least 21. But do you have to show an ID to buy cigarettes? You do have to show an ID. Um, do you need an ID when you're getting a job and trying to get on payroll in Texas? Yes. 
do you need an ID to uh, go to the pharmacy and get a prescription in Texas? It depends on the prescription. But do you need an ID for some prescriptions yes, in Texas? Do. Yes. Um, do you need an ID to uh, get Social Security services in Texas? You do. Do you need an ID uh, to rent an apartment in Texas? Yes. Do you need an ID if you're going to buy a house uh, and finance it via a mortgage in Texas? Yes. Um, do you need an ID in Texas if you're going to board an aircraft and fly commercial? Yes. Did you fly commercial or fly a private jet on the way to D.C.? A chartered plane. Do you have to show an ID when you fly in a private charter jet? Yes. I wouldn't know. I've never, I've never flown on one. All right, that's enough. You can hear what's going on here or where she's going with it. Uh, and um, dressing down an 82-year-old woman who has served in the Texas House for a half century maybe isn't the best look when you're trying to make the point that what you're doing is not um, stomping on the rights of minorities. Um, two things. One, which I mentioned, Representative Mace talking about um, all of these things like liquor and getting on a plane and whatever else, none of those are constitutional rights and voting is. Two, which I also mentioned, is we have had photo ID requirements for voting in Texas and have had them for 10 years. And when I talk to uh, people who are in the business of politics on the Democratic side, uh, consultants, people who work on campaigns, Jeremy, they have told me that, yeah, it's a battle that they waged a decade ago, but they have learned to deal with it, right? I mean, and we should say, the version of photo ID requirements that was passed 10 years ago has had to be changed over the last decade because courts have found that it was discriminatory, right? So, so if someone's in favor of photo ID, which we have seen more Democrats say that they are as of late, right? That, that it's fine, but you have to have equity in the law and you, there are things you can do in that law to make it such that it's harder on certain people to vote than others, right? Um, Travis Clardy, was the only Republican member of the Texas House to address this committee in Washington. And he said that the laws that are being considered, the proposals that they're looking at here in Austin, these are not discriminatory, and they're just trying to secure the ballot box and move things forward. The right to vote by a secure private ballot is a fundamental right in this country that should be protected. And the laws protecting our vote should be debated honestly and vigorously. And that is exactly what we've endeavored to do in Texas for the last eight months. While I am grateful for the invitation to be here, I believe this conversation is best suited for the Texas House floor and our state capitol in Austin, rather than a Washington, D.C. committee hearing room. However, I must take some exception to the premise of why we were invited to testify. To be sure, there is no assault on voting rights in Texas. But there is, in fact, a real danger posed to our democracy. Not the well-intentioned and reasoned provisions in HB3 to better secure our election processes, but instead the growing threat of practices too long tolerated that deprive individuals of voting for the candidates of their choice and diluting the essential democratic concept of one person, one vote. Moreover, while I appreciate the hard work and effort trying to pass a one-size-fits-all federal omnibus election bill, I am reminded of that familiar Texas adage to be leery of those who pronounce they are with the federal government and they're here to help. He uh, defended various parts of the bill and said, it is time for Democrats to come back to Texas. Let's make no mistake about it. Illegal voting does occur in the state of Texas and it cannot be excused. We must have zero tolerance when it comes to voter fraud. Confidence in our elections 
like faith in our judiciary and trust in our law enforcement is vital to the perpetuation of the American experiment. And it is our best and utmost assurance for the survival of our Republic. This is the duty we all have to our constituents and the oath that we all took to our constitution, to our nation and to our state. I believe we are all up to the task. Jeremy Clardy was zooming into this meeting. He was uh, on on the internet uh, uh, video conference so that he could be there because guess what? He and other Republicans are locked in Austin. They can't leave because they put what they call a call on the house. uh, And that means every day when they go to the house, the doors are locked and they can't leave unless they have written permission from the speaker. As I mentioned, they're all getting that permission to leave every day. So it's probably a lot of three martini lunches going on uh, every afternoon in Austin with a lot of these folks who are stuck here. Um, he mentioned that you shouldn't have any voter fraud, that it, uh, it should be rooted out and it can't be tolerated. Representative Diego Bernal from San Antonio, a Democrat, stressed that uh, voter fraud is extremely rare in Texas, and he brought the numbers. There are 154 prosecutions of voter fraud in the past 17 years in Texas out of 94 million votes cast. The likelihood of voter fraud in Texas is less than any one of us being struck by lightning. <laughs> did the did the the math on that, Jeremy? Um, where we are with this in Washington would seem to be that Democrats, in the majority there, of course, are in the minority here in Texas, but in the majority there in D.C., may be getting a message. Um, you may have seen where there is a new proposal in the United States Senate, sort of a pared down version of a voting rights bill uh, that might be able to make its way through the hurdles of the U.S. Senate. I saw where some folks who are Capitol Hill watchers were saying that if something can get done by the Senate in bipartisan fashion, because it has to be, because that's the way the rules are set up in the Senate, if that can happen, then the House will just accept whatever that is. Right, because because Pelosi, the leadership there, the speaker, she knows that that's the hang up in, in the in the House right now. They can pass this stuff. They have previously the For the People Act and the uh, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. That stuff has the votes to get through the House. The Senate is the hang up and they may actually be moving. Now, I did hear one Democrat say privately that, look, the United States Senate is not going to change the way they do business just because Democrats from Texas are there in town. Right, because there are a host of issues that they're trying to uh, address right now. The, the main priority of the Biden administration seems to not be this, but seems to be infrastructure because the president thinks that he can get a bipartisan win on that. And what do you think? I mean, he um, he is an old school politician, has been around for decades. How many times has Joe Biden run for president? There's lots of jokes about that. Right. But he finally got the dog finally caught the car, as they would say. Um, he wants to act in bipartisan fashion, but there's a, there's another side to that, which is if it doesn't work out, he can blame the Republicans for it not working out because they started out calling it a bipartisan proposal on infrastructure, right? And I think they're trying to set a tone that if they can do that with both parties acting in concert, then they can also address other things in bipartisan fashion and voting might have to come after it. Yeah, exactly. And the infrastructure plan, if you look at how uh, Joe Biden is trying to you know, to pitch it around the country, he's going to places, including uh, locations where he's lost the election. He's going to places, you know, in Kentucky and you know parts of Michigan where he didn't win, you know, and he's speaking basically to Trump supporters and to Republicans out there. See, look, I'm trying to do something bipartisan. So he's kind of focused on that. 
end of things. And you see the deadlines here are kind of rough for the Texas Democrats who are trying to do, you know, fight this voter bill. So, you know, as of today, the United States House of Representatives is going to be on break for a long time. <laughs> they are not coming back in all of August. You know, they won't be back until voting. They won't be back voting until September 20th. So they can't do anything, you know, to help the Texas Democrats until we are well past Labor Day, folks. It's over on that front. The only thing left is they, you know, they're trying to push the Senate to do something. The Senate has a week, you know, before they go on break, too. So there's there's a lot that has to happen. And like you mentioned, there's so much more focus on the infrastructure package uh, that the Texas Democrats may not get the bone that they're hoping for, you know, until sometime in September. And so that puts them in this weird spot where they're coming back to Texas. Kind of, they, they elevate the discussion on voter rights in D.C., for sure. They get a lot of national attention, but they're going to be coming home without really much to show for it, ultimately, in the end. One other thing about this hearing that I found pretty interesting, a cringeworthy moment, as the kids call it. Uh, Congressman Pat Fallon, who's from North Texas, he challenged... Uh, Sinfronia Thompson, the longtime state representative who we were hearing, uh, hearing from before, on why these Democrats are in Washington at all instead of Austin. We, we, we've heard this a few times. They, they're supposed to be in Austin. The governor and others have said, get back to work. I see a lot of uh, Republican state representatives are making the same argument, tweeting out hatred at the Democrats and, uh, and mocking them for being in D.C. and running up a big tab for taxpayers back here. As the special session drags on, there is a cost for taxpayers to that. It costs about a million dollars or so uh, for a special session of the legislature if it goes the full 30 days, which it looks like it's going to, even though nothing is happening in Austin. Uh, Fallon started by reminding Ms. Thompson that she was first elected back in the 70s. And then listen closely to where this goes. You'll, you will hear it, the part, that I'm, the part that I'm calling cringeworthy. <laughs> it will jump out at you. Listen. So for 30 years, your first 30 years, you enjoyed a majority in the Texas House of Representatives, correct? Democrats were majority? Right. Did the Republican ever use this quote-unquote uh, right or tactic uh, to break quorum in those 30 years? We using the same procedure that Oregon used so, two I years ago because we have very the Republicans time. Of, of the state oh. of Oregon broke quorum. Uh, uh, did, did, and as did you did know, Texas? Pat, it's in the rules. The rules allows oh, the rules allows for a quorum, I'm just asking, and we broke quorum. The representative of our our district. Okay, I'll give and you because of the fact that we want to be able to have a voice in our democracy, is the I'm reason asking. why we are here. The real reason, what you should be asking me, is why are you having a problem? Because Texas happened to be 84 percent people of color and 16 percent of Anglo and look like the power is about to swing and you having a problem by wanting all of these laws in place. All right, Noah, but we're going to accept that as your response. I don't want to get into a Texas tussle here. We'll go back to you, Mr. Fallon. You get a, your final wrap-up question or statement. Thank you very much. I, I consider myself a person of color. I don't know what it is, kind of pinkish, maybe. We are friends, Mr. I, Chairman. I know. He and I are friends. Representative Thompson. Obviously, you guys have roots in Texas. There. Representative, mm -hmm. I may be white, but I'm colorful. Okay. But anyhow. Pat, you know I had the honor <laughs> of working with you, and it was a pleasure. No, thank you. He's a person of color. He's he's pinkish. Then he backed off that a little bit and said, "Well, I, I'm I'm colorful." Um, and if when you, if you if you just read that in print, it is horrifying right? that, yeah. that he said he's a person of color. I think Pat Fallon, who I know, Pat Fallon. Pat Fallon is a friend of mine. Jeremy, you're no Pat Fallon. 
he <laughs> Pat Fallon, he tries to get along with people, but uh, you know, he's he's also on a national stage now as a congressman. He used to be a state representative and served with Miss Thompson. So you heard them say that they know each other, they respect each other, and something that's going on in that interaction is the kind of thing that I would like to be able to export to Washington, but we're just not able to. It's it's not working that way right now. Uh, we are getting the DC effect back here in Austin for sure. Uh, the way that they conduct business is the way Texas politics is going right now. Everything is bitterly partisan and nasty. He yep. tried to he tried to go in a direction of bitter partisanship and nastiness with her, but the reason that it didn't come off that way. As you listen to that human interaction between them, I mean, set aside the specific words for just a second and listen to the way they interacted with each other. Why did it go that way? It's because she was gracious, even though he said something that was really silly. Um, and some people might even say it was covering for for some uh, for for supporters that might have a racist tendency. I'll say it that way. Um, setting aside exactly what he said. There's a collegiality there because they've worked together before. Yep. She was the chair of very powerful committees uh, and ha is and has been. Um, and so I'm sure there are pieces of Texas law that Pat Fallon passed while he was a state representative that probably had to go through her committee, local in consent. Right. That's a big committee because the things that are supposedly non-controversial were supposed to go there. And that's what she chaired previously. He had to work with somebody like that across the aisle, even if they don't agree about this, this thing at all on other things, they would have to work together in Washington. They don't do that. They just scream yeah. at each other that how would that have, how would that interaction go if it was just two members of Congress? Right. It would have been a screaming match and uh, anger or just not talking to each other. But in that instance, they talk to each other. And I'm hoping that out of all of this, the way business is done in the Texas House will, will sort of hew to tradition, right? You have Republican activists right now who are making the case. I saw the Republican Party of Texas chairman today sending out an email saying that people like Ms. Thompson should not be chairman in the House, that they should be stripped of those chairmanships. People uh, who are Democrats should not be the speaker pro tem. They should not be in any leadership positions and that Texas ought to go the way of almost every other state and have the majority party just rule everything and do everything and not share power at all with the minority party. A point I made in one of our columns at quorumreport.com this week is that our foundational documents, the Texas Constitution, and that whole argument they were having about the quorum break and whether that's appropriate. Um, the Constitution says two-thirds of them have to be there, right? That's it. that's one of the foundational ideas about our government is that people from all over this state need to be in the room to debate the policies that we're all going to have to live under, right? And the gains that Democrats have made in elections over the last decade necessitate compromise and the kind of collegiality you heard between the two of them just now. And that means at some point, Republican leadership has to do something to get these Democrats to come back to Texas and do it in the spirit of compromise. And I just don't see them anywhere close to that right now, at least at the very top where you have Governor Abbott saying that, uh, you know, Republicans shouldn't be in any, in any mood to compromise with Democrats. And in fact, they ought to be arrested when they come back, which is the opposite of what you would want to say if you actually want them to come back. I don't know how long this is going to drag out, Jeremy, uh, but I don't have a lot of hope that the stalemate ends anytime soon. 
Yeah, one facet of it comes to an end, right? The DC part is coming to an end. They're all going to come home, and then we're going to get into a whole new, you know, what's the next chapter going to look like? You know, it's like, and like you said, there's this, you know, conflicting problem, you know, really, I would say that Republicans might have, which is you have this one set of Republicans who want to crush the Democrats, you know, on any issue, right? You know, just crush your opponent, you know, but that belies the fact that, you know, the House rules require that you're going to have to work with Democrats on stuff. Like you pointed out, there are Democratic chairmen, there are, and you need Democratic votes on some items that you're going to need. So, like, how do you crush the people who you also have to work with? So, and you saw it a little bit in that interview in the, um, the Dan Patrick press conference two weeks ago, you know, where he was trying to like, you know, say, okay, we're going to take some stuff off the table. It's never going to be in the bill again. You see, they're trying to provide some, you know, consolation prize, but then also promising to roll you over <laughs> at the same time. If you're in certain crowds, you know, it's like they're going to be in Republican circles saying, you know, yeah, we want to arrest these people, throw them away. You know, it's like, you know, they're terrible. Uh, but at the same time, they to the broader public, they have to say we're negotiating with these folks, right? Right. You know? Democrats don't seem to have a, an, an end game that is apparent, at least just yet. But Republicans are in a box because of the way that our government is established and set up in Texas. I mean, you mentioned the House rules, but it is the Constitution that they have to have two thirds yeah. of the members there. Right. And that's not going to change. Dan Patrick saying that he wants to change the Texas Constitution to remove that two-thirds requirement to change the Constitution, you have to have two-thirds of votes to do it. So that's not going to – that's a non-starter. That is not <laughs> yeah, going to happen. Exactly. <laughs> so they have two audiences, uh, two audiences who um, don't overlap at all. The, yeah. the, the two audiences are the Democrats in Washington, who they need them to come back, and the other audience is their primary electorate, Republicans who don't care about that. I was talking yeah. to my friend uh, Chad Hasty, who hosts a, a couple of radio shows actually out in West Texas, and um, he's getting from conservative listeners text messages. You know, they have a text line at the radio station. People can you know text in their thoughts on stuff, and he said that um, a lot of the listeners are just saying, lock them up, lock them up. You know, they, I mean, they're they're – repeating they're echoing the kind of rhetoric that Donald Trump would say on the campaign trail about Hillary Clinton and some of the other people that he didn't agree with um, there is a march going on right now on this issue of voting rights from and they were sort of billing this Jeremy as like a Selma Alabama kind of march right uh, from Williamson County to Austin what's going on with that yeah uh, 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 the Reverend William Barber uh, and Beto O'Rourke were kind of you know, coordinating this you know, like you said, a Selma style march to bring attention to voter issues, uh, as if there's not already a lot of attention on voter issues. But they wanted to open a second front that they said is supposed to be in support of what the Texas Democrats are doing in Washington, D.C. So, they, you know, since Wednesday, they've been uh, marching for parts of the day uh, from Georgetown to Austin. It's going to wrap up on Saturday. Uh, where, you know, they're going to have a big rally there. It's like, I'm not sure how big it's going to be. You know, it's like, you know, there have been a couple others that we've already had at the Capitol. Uh, but we do know that now Willie Nelson is going to be popping in. And who can resist Willie Nelson? I may have to go down music there. Anywhere yeah. in Texas right. after all this dumb pandemic, right? <laughs> it's, it's enough. Uh, you know, live music is yeah. something that has just been missing from I I see people... Um, and forget the politics for a second. It's okay to have an opinion about this. We need live music uh, in our lives. It, it, it is. Um, uh, it it gives me life. I'll say it that way. Yes. I have I have yes. really missed it. In fact, 
I was lining up uh, tickets for the Killers for next year, in, and I'm and I haven't seen them since the pandemic. One of my favorite bands, so I bought tickets in every town in Texas they're going to play. <laughs> and oh, I don't know if I'm going to I don't know if I'm going to go to all of those shows because you know you can also make some money selling you know selling them on the StubHub. But now I have my pick of it. But that's how excited I was to be able to get some tickets for live music. Let's hope we can get past this pandemic and people will do the right things, you know, no matter what the government uh, officials are arguing about you, at the you moment. Know what we could use right about now. We could use, you know, you remember the old, you know, don't mess with Texas, you know, ad campaigns with Willie Nelson and Stevie Ray Vaughan. They need to re-harness that energy and kind of a like, you know, don't mess with Texans. Go get vaccinated so you don't mess with them. You know, it's like you get a, a machismo kind of, you know, you know, true Texans get vaccinated, you know, get something out there that kind of crosses, you know, through. So maybe maybe they get Willie Nelson to chip in. If there's any hope for anything that could be bipartisan after all of what we have been talking about and some of the other things we're about to talk about, it, you would think it'd be Willie Nelson. If, if Beto O'Rourke and Greg Abbott could agree about one thing. It's that Willie Nelson should be out there as the face of getting people vaccinated in Texas. Yeah, there's an idea. Uh, yeah. That one. That on one was. That, <laughs> yeah, right. Republican Democrat. Everybody loves on the road again. Yes. Everybody hums that little tune when it gets on. It right? is. Yes, it is unbelievable to me that people can download this podcast for free. All right, um, Jake Elzey is the winner. And Donald Trump is the loser. That's the way I saw this race portrayed all over the national news, um, a special election for a congressional seat here in Texas, in North Texas, uh, where Ron Wright passed away, uh, the former congressman who was also, what was he before? He was the uh, tax assessor collector uh, in Tarrant County, um, a longtime Republican leader uh, from the Fort Worth area, uh, from Arlington. And he ran for Congress. He was successful. And then he passed away, complications uh, from lung cancer and COVID-19. Very sad. Um, and so this kicked off a political race, uh, which had how many people ran for this originally? More than 20? I mean, they had a yeah, bunch of candidates. I lost track of it. In the first round of voting, uh, it was portrayed nationally as a race where potentially an anti-Donald Trump Republican could win the race. That person, whose name I can't remember, I think got about 1% or 2% in the first round of voting. That did not work out. What I have been thinking... On these races, uh, on and this is this turned into a Republican race. But keep this in mind as we talk about this: it's not a Republican primary; it's a special election, and those are not the same. And never ever, my my usual admonishment: never ever read too much into the results of a special election. But there are things okay. that we can go through here. Um, Susan Wright, who's the widow of Ron Wright, who we mentioned, um, she was running, and she was the top vote getter in the first round of voting. Right. And the second place finisher in the first round was a guy named Jake Elsey. He's a state representative uh, whose district includes Ellis County, the areas around Waxahachie, um, and uh, it overlaps or it's actually I think it's fully contained within the uh, congressional district that we're talking about. I might be slightly off with that, but it, there's a lot of overlap. Anyway, a ton of overlap. Um, as Election Day approached on Monday, the, the, the election was Tuesday on Monday. Folks were getting a very special phone call from a very special person. Hello, this is your hopefully all-time favorite president, Donald Trump. Well, that's exciting, right? The, the president's calling. What's going on, sir? Texas, there is an important runoff election for Congress in your district, and it's this Tuesday. And I'm asking you to go out and vote for a great Republican, a great woman, Susan Wright. 
The only way to stop Joe Biden from running our great country right into the ground is to elect conservatives like Susan Wright. But the endorsement did not do the trick. Susan Wright lost to Jake Elzey, and it wasn't um, it wasn't a landslide or anything, but it was decisive. I mean, by about nine o'clock on election night on Tuesday, we knew Elzey was on track to beat Susan Wright as the election day numbers started to come in, uh, and the uh, the early voting looked one way, the election day voting looked a different way. But you know, by nine o'clock Tuesday night, as I said, it was a fifty-two forty-eight race, decisive, not a landslide. But she lost. And you have President Trump out there uh, acting as if his endorsement is the gold standard. And this is what wins races for Republicans. He tried to say he got some bad advice. In fact, he said a couple of things. One thing that former President Trump said was that it wasn't really a loss for him. It was a win because a good Republican won the race. He weighed in at the urging of a group called Club for Growth which is sort of a national version of Empower Texans, a third-party right-wing group that tries to uh, you know, play in these elections uh, and, and basically get uh, people elected who will be loyal to them, and they do it by spending a lot of money. They spent about $1.1 or so, I think, in this race to try to get Susan Wright elected. It did not work out. Um, and it's just more complicated than whether Trump was with one of the candidates or the other. Trump had endorsed Wright, but Elsie is no liberal. And this comes back to the whole discussion about what does it mean to be a Republican in the era of Trump and a discussion about whether the Trump era is maybe coming to a close. I think that anyone who's drawing you know, definite um, conclusions about that right now is getting ahead of themselves. You never, ever, ever want to read too much into the results of one special election, especially one held in the middle of July when the early voting and the election day is happening toward the end of July, it's not the best uh, turnout you're going to see in elections. And so the electorate is going to be unique. You had a lot of Republicans voting here because it was two Republican candidates who made it into the runoff. In that first round of voting, you had more than 20 people running. There was an anti-Trump candidate who <laughs> just wasn't even a factor, even though national uh, press wanted to make it a factor. It just wasn't at all. Elsie is a conservative. He'll be a conservative vote in Congress. He's been a conservative vote in the Texas House of Representatives. If anybody thinks, watching the national coverage on all this, that you're going to have a moderate or a liberal Republican going to Congress from Texas because of this race, that is just not true. Think about the people who were endorsing this guy, Jake Elsey, who's a really good candidate, just objectively. He, he did a good job campaigning. People who were with him included uh, former Governor Rick Perry, who was campaigning actively for him, uh, Representative Dan Crenshaw, congressman from Houston, who's also no liberal, uh, former State Affairs Committee Chairman Byron Cook from Corsicana, whose his old district uh, uh, overlaps with that area as well. One of the full circle moments in Texas politics, Susan Wright, when she was the or when she was one of the members of the State Republican Executive Committee, she was the one, as I understood it, to make the motion to censure Byron Cook when he was in the state house back in 2017 over the failure of Dan Patrick's bathroom bill. At that time, it's kind of the same thing. Patrick said that he won the issue, even though the bill went down in flames. Now you have Donald Trump saying that he won this race, even though his candidate did not win the race. It, you, this is an easy one to oversimplify and, and to, um, to mistakenly do so. I would not make the assessment that the Trump endorsement, 
is a bad thing for someone running in a Republican primary. This special election is not a Republican primary. There are plenty of people who voted in this who were either Democrats or people who are Republicans, but maybe not the kind of Republican who necessarily votes in a Republican primary. Those are two different. You have uh, Republicans who are the ones who would crawl through broken glass in the rain to support their candidate. And that's the kind of person who comes out for Trump, but comes out for Ted Cruz. Then you have other Republicans. And then you have some folks who probably, probably all they needed to be told was this is the only election happening in America right now. And Donald Trump is with Susan Wright. And Elsie wouldn't have to say anything bad about either one of them. He kept it pretty positive. But there are plenty of voters who, if they were just educated on the fact that Trump was endorsing right, then they would get out to vote and vote against her. So it's easy to oversimplify this. And I think that is a mistake. Uh, we, it's, it's, it's something that uh, was more of a local thing versus a nationalized thing. I think that's fair. I think um, Gromer Jeffers Jr. at the Dallas Morning News had made that point. On CBS News, he was saying that, look, if you if you look at the endorsements, you look at the folks who were backing LZ, uh, who is a Republican, um, somebody who's Republican classic versus right. Um, you cannot draw the assessment that this is um, a moderate who's going to Washington. Instead, you saw those local conservatives, those activists in the area who were really getting out there uh, for LZ and to try to get him over the finish line in this race. And it worked. And the way one close observer of all this said it is you can't win with nothing when you're up against something. Elsie's campaign was about issues. It was about those key endorsements. It was about getting out there and block walking and making sure that people knew when the election is or when it was and who you should vote for and not engaging in a bunch of nasty attacks, which uh, Wright's campaign did do that. Speaking of nasty attacks, one last thing here. You all have heard by now about the controversy uh, with Simone Biles, the uh, amazing, amazing gymnast from Houston. They call her the greatest of all time. And this is someone who has uh, gymnastics moves named after her. Okay. Um, the controversy uh, about her pulling out of some of the events at the Olympics uh, drew uh, some very nasty uh, commentary from certain people, including one of the top officials in the attorney general's office, a guy named Aaron Reitz. I thought his name was Reitz. It's R-E-I-T-Z. Aaron Reitz, who does listen to this show, by the way, he tweets hatred at me sometimes for things I say here, and I usually just ignore it, but his comments about Simone Biles could not be ignored. It was in all the newspapers. He said that he owed Simone Biles an apology, a big one for something he had said about her on Twitter. This is what he had said, that she was a, quote, selfish, childish, national embarrassment. And when your boss is Ken Paxton and he thinks that you messed up, it must be pretty bad. <laughs> the way somebody said it was, um, it's got to be a really special feeling to have Ken Paxton think that you have crossed the line. <laughs> Paxton said that he knows Simone Biles and that the sort of mental health issues that she's dealing with um, and the issues that go along with the kind of uh, physicality she has to in, you know, engage in at the Olympics um, and the fact that she could hurt herself. It's all very, this is all very real stuff. Why would Wright 
say that? Why would he say that she is a national embarrassment? Well, this is the guy who he is following, just following off of a cliff, Charlie Kirk. Have you heard of this guy? Charlie Kirk is with a group called uh, Turning Point USA. They consider themselves sort of a, a conservative group for, for young people, it's a young conservatives uh, organization. What it really is is a Donald Trump fan club. And Kirk is one of the biggest grifters on the planet. I say that with no hesitation. He runs this group, TPUSA, which um, put on that rally for Trump in Arizona last weekend. And they bring Trump on stage as if uh, as if it's a WWE rally or a WWE event. <laughs> uh, you hear Trump's voice say, do you miss me? And then there's some rock and roll music that hits and... Trump comes out. Well, um, Charlie Kirk, speaking on his podcast or radio show or whatever, he um, went off about Biles and her decision to withdraw from these Olympic events. So Simone Biles, I don't know her politics. I don't. I just know that she's you know, shown on television a lot. I don't know if she was ever uh, sexually assaulted or abused. So I, I, don't, I don't know what she's been through. I, I, seriously, I mean that uh, sincerely. You just heard him say he does not know anything about the particulars of her situation. He doesn't know anything. That's not me saying that. You just heard him say that. But fear not, dear listener, the fact that he doesn't know anything about this will not slow him down. However, I'm going to say this. Don't show up to the Olympics and compete if you're not ready for the big moments. This is not high school this is not college. This is the Olympics. It's bigger than yourself, Simone. So Simone Biles, who's obviously a very talented gymnast, decided not to compete in the gold medal competition. Now, she probably could have just competed and just kind of checked the boxes and they would have got a gold medal. I am fairly certain that's not how winning gold medals works. You don't just go through the motions that won't really do the trick. He says, there are, uh, he says look, th there's a lot here that he doesn't know and that he doesn't understand, but he is still going to make the point that he wants to make. We are raising a generation of weak people like Simone Biles. Again, if you want to be... If she got all these mental health problems, don't show up. She's an incredible athlete. Of course she's an incredible athlete. I'm not saying... I just said she's probably the greatest gymnast of all time. She's also very selfish. She's immature. And she is a shame to the country. There have always been people who had really obnoxious opinions. And that's not new. What is newer... It's not even really new-ish anymore. I guess it's newer is that people with horrible opinions based on nothing can be heard by everybody. You can put it on Twitter. You can put it in uh, any social media platform that you like. And people all over the planet might see it and make judgments about it. And it used to be that if a guy was at the end of the bar watching sports and had an obnoxious opinion, people would just move away from the guy, not sit next to him. It wasn't all over the internet. Now it is. And... I think there is a lesson to be learned here, and it's a very simple one, which is you don't need to have an opinion about everything. You really don't. If you are an average white guy, like I am, maybe your opinion about Olympic-level gymnastics doesn't matter. 
maybe no one cares what you think about that. And, to compound things, <laughs> the only case in which they would care what you had said about it is if you went way too far with your comments, that you said something absolutely ridiculous. I saw where some Republican members of the Texas legislature and others were tweeting things that were not exactly as bad as what Wrights said, but they later deleted their comments because they were very insensitive about what's going on with this young woman. And um, if you're going to make it your business to weigh in on something, you should know something about it first. Give that a try before you go off about someone who is the greatest of all time. All right, if you enjoy this show, and you know you do, and by the way, they should have a, a parade for Simone Biles in, in Houston whenever she's back. If you enjoy the show, you know you do. You should be a subscriber on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, however you listen to your favorite podcasts. Give us the best rating that you can. Subscribe to CorumReport.com and HoustonChronicle.com, and we will see you next week. Mm-hmm.